Hi everyone, and welcome to Alopecia's Audacity Podcast, proudly hosted by the Canadian Alopecia Areata Foundation. I'm Sarah Teske. I'm Crystal Malcolm. And I'm Lauren Harrison. We're here to offer you a breath of fresh air from those without hair. Now listen, alopecia isn't easy, but we're going to challenge its audacity through our candid conversations, letting hair loss know that it cannot stop us from living our best life. We're here to empower, educate, and inspire you so that you leave us feeling confident knowing that you can be bald, bold, and free, not only on your own, but when you're surrounded by others. On behalf of Canadians who have been diagnosed with alopecia areata, CANAF promotes awareness, education, raises funds for research, and so much more for those affected by this autoimmune disease. You can find CANAF on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at CANAF. That is C-A-N-A-A-F. And learn more about our organization at CANAF.org. On our homepage, you can subscribe to receive our monthly emails, and we'll send you updates on our latest episodes, as well as other alopecia news and event updates. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, we're talking about what's new in treatment and research for anyone with alopecia areata, as well as sorting through some of the facts as to what causes alopecia areata. This is a topic so many people want to know about, and most of the questions that we get at CANF are treatment-related. So that's why today we've invited our good friend and alopecia expert, Anthony Gilding, to talk to us about this topic and answer some of the questions you listeners have sent in. So a little bit about Anthony. Anthony Gilding is CANF's Director of Science and Research. Born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Anthony has had alopecia areata since he was 14 years old. Anthony is an aspiring dermatologist and autoimmune disease epidemiologist. He is passionate about educating Canadians on alopecia areata while conducting research in the field to influence the medical and psychosocial care that is provided to patients living with this condition. Currently, he holds an Honours Bachelor of Science with Distinction in Biomedical Sciences from Toronto Metropolitan University, and he is an up-and-coming scientific author and researcher. Anthony's research has been published in the Journal of Medical Internet Research Dermatology, the Canadian Journal for Nurse Practitioners, and most recently the prestigious journal Autoimmunity Reviews. His research has also been presented at the Canadian Dermatology Association Conference back in the summer of 2022. Wow, Whew, what an incredible bio, Anthony. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, so we've got a lot of great questions today, so we're really excited to get into it. Uh, But before that, Anthony, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your story with alopecia areata? Yeah, so my story, there's really two parts to it. So when I was seven years old, uh, I developed a couple, I think it was like two or three bald spots on the side of my head. And uh, so this was back in 2006, 2007, when we knew even less about alopecia areata than we know now. And so my family physician treated it with steroid creams. I didn't see a dermatologist or anything like that. And the hair came back and I didn't have to think about it for about seven years. And then in 2013, when I was 14 years old, uh, it came back the same way. Uh, I was getting a haircut and my dad, who was a barber, uh, noticed a bald spot on the side of my head. And at first we thought maybe he just cut the hair too short, but then we looked closely and realized there was no hair there at all. So there was no way that he did that. Um, 
saw my family physician. She confirmed it's alopecia areata. So I thought, okay, you know, it's going to be the same thing. We'll use the steroid cream and the hair will come back. Uh, but this time it didn't. And that one spot got bigger and bigger. And then I noticed another spot and another spot. And eventually it looked like somebody had taken a pencil eraser and erased a bunch of circles in my head. It was that um, drastic. And then it kind of progressed to what we call alopecia universalis, which is where you have no hair on your head, eyebrows, eyelashes are gone, no body hair. And I've had that for about, oh gosh, well, since 2014, 2015, however many years that is, don't ask me to do the math. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of waxed and waned. So I've, I've had some hair grow back, some fall out, been a cyclical journey. And yeah, that's kind of my alopecia journey up until now. So what kind of emotional impact did that have? Because if you had it so like in your preteen years and, you know, mm -hmm. kids can be such a ray of sunshine in school. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, like, how was that? How did that impact your emotional and mental state going through it during like, you know, junior high school versus mm -hmm. transitioning into high school? How did that? Yeah, you know, it was it was incredibly tough for me, not only just the alopecia itself, but I was also coming to terms with my own sexuality and and uh you know, coming to terms with the fact that I was gay. And so having this happen at the same time was like, what is going on? Like, I don't even know what to do. Um, but the alopecia was, it was incredibly challenging. I had very significant anxiety and depression because of it. Uh, I actually had to finish my high school diploma from home because it was just so, you know, mentally overbearing that I, I couldn't I didn't have the strength to to go to school and to face all of the all of my peers. But yeah, it was I almost don't even really have the words to articulate just how difficult it was not only for me but for my family uh while they were kind of watching helplessly. Um mm -hmm. yeah, so it was very very difficult. What kind of supports did you have that helped you get through it? Uh, well, I had my family, which I think I wouldn't be here today without them. So they were crucial. They were my number one support system. Uh, I also had my friends and uh, the support of mental health professionals and my family physician was really, really important for me because I think initially I was in denial. I, you, I couldn't accept that I had alopecia. I was convinced that my hair was going to grow back. Um, and so I was kind of resistant to receiving mental health support because everyone was telling me, you know, you have to accept that you might not get your hair back. So let's work on your mental health. I didn't want to hear that because as far mm -hmm. as I was concerned, my hair was coming back. Yeah. Um, but when I kind of came to the realization that that might not happen, then I opened up and I spoke to my family and my family physician who connected me with a psychiatrist. Um, and so really that whole network of people was the village that I needed to get to where I am today. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us, Anthony. It really is meaningful to have that vulnerability. And it is probably helpful for some of our listeners to hear that 
denial and slowly coming to acceptance can be a part of the journey that mm-hmm. all in good time we we come to terms with what accepting our alopecia means. So Anthony, you had mentioned that um, you did suffer from depression and anxiety, and that caused you to have to be homeschooled. What was that experience like? Did you feel like you were missing out more um, and kind of like maybe robbing yourself of having that interaction with peers and Mm -hmm. networking and connecting with um, other students and that sort of thing because you were in such a, a hard state? Like, how did you manage that? There was a lot of resistance from my school as well as my parents and even my dermatologist at the time. They were all saying, you know, we would really prefer that you be in school if you can. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, I just so I I was going to school with the alopecia. I was trying, but I unfortunately did experience bullying and I just I didn't have the the mental strength to deal with that while also dealing with my alopecia. So I just had a very candid conversation with my parents. And I said, listen, I need to take some time to myself. I I want to finish my my diploma. I want to finish school, but I need to do it somewhere where I feel safe and comfortable Mm -hmm. because what was happening was I was starting to fail and Mm -hmm. uh, academically, and that had never happened Mm -hmm. Up until that point, I had always been a straight A, A plus student. And uh, science and math were always my strong suits. And I was starting to fail in those classes. And so that was a sign that I needed to take some time. So initially, when I started the homeschooling, I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything because I was really only focused on my alopecia and my mental health. So I wasn't really thinking about anything else. Um, But as time went on, I did start to feel a bit left out because, you know, I would see people posting on social media that they were going to parties and all of these school gatherings. And I wasn't really talking to anybody from my school. So I did. I did feel quite left out. But in retrospect, it it probably was the best decision that I could have ever made because the homeschooling allowed me to get the mental health care that I needed. Um, and so I don't regret it. And so you didn't end up finding CANF until a few years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Did you happen to meet anyone else with alopecia when you were younger or anyone else that you could relate to before you found CANF? No. So it was an incredibly isolating experience for me because as far as I could tell, I was the only person that I knew of that had alopecia. Um, None of my dermatologists or family physician at the time knew about CANAP. Nobody knew where I could go for support. And it it wasn't until I was in university and and doing my own research that I came across CANAP. So for those many years up until that point, I felt very alone. And finding CANAP was like, a breath of fresh air. It was just what I needed. I know how it's, uh, how it can be um, very difficult experience to go through and a a different difficult one to talk about too. Thank you for being vulnerable here with us today. Of course. Absolutely. And I just, um, I just had a quick question. Now, when you were in school, like I know some of our female listeners, like 
when they started to experience hair loss, one of the things that they would do is maybe wear a wig or a scarf or a beanie or something. Did you have any options at all? Like, did you try maybe a toupee or did you, were you able, because I know in some schools you're not allowed to wear hats. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, were you able to wear a hat or put a bandana on to maybe cover up um, certain areas? Like, how did you navigate through that as well before transitioning off into homeschool? Yeah, so my high school had a very strict dress code um, and hats were not allowed, but when I spoke to my school with my parents about my alopecia, they offered to allow me to wear a hat. Um, But I chose not to because knowing that the dress code was so strict, Mm -hmm. if I was the only one wearing a hat, it would inevitably draw more attention to me than I think the alopecia would because everyone would be saying, why is Anthony wearing a hat? Why is Anthony allowed to wear a hat, but we can't? What is he hiding? Mm-hmm. And um, I just didn't want to deal with that. And I also didn't want to deal with the possibility that somebody rips my hat off and everybody sees it. And so what I did was, um, so as I mentioned earlier, my dad is a, a barber and a hairstylist. And at the time, I did have some hair left still. So we he tried his best to work with it and camouflage the spots as best as we could Mm -hmm. and so that's what I was doing for as long as I could until the spots got so big that I I couldn't cover it anymore and at that point I was only at school for maybe a couple of weeks before I, I made the decision to transition into homeschooling. Okay and did you seek any medical treatment at that young age? by chance? Yeah, I did. So um, I I had a dermatologist, um, but they weren't the most enthusiastic about treating it. Um, mm-hmm. Their belief was that this is just hair and that many of their patients were living with alopecia and it didn't bother them. So it shouldn't bother me either. Um, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so that was difficult for me to deal with. Um, but they did offer me some things. So they offered me uh, a stronger corticosteroid lotion. And I did that for, gosh, probably about a year uh, with no success. And at that point, they didn't really have much more to offer me. But I wasn't satisfied with that. So I sought care from another dermatologist. And this one was much, much better. And I I really attribute the dermatologist that I'm going to be to her because she not only was concerned about treating my alopecia, but she was treating me just as a human being. And she always wanted to make sure that every step of, of the way that my mental health was in check and that I was being taken care of in that respect. So very grateful for her. That's awesome. And you know, in speaking about treatments, that kind of leads me into talking about treatments and research. And, you know, I really want you to help us debunk some of the facts versus fiction that's mm-hmm. surrounding the causes of alopecia, because as you know, the internet can be full of a lot of misinformation causing, you know, some confusion and uncertainty, especially for people who are newly diagnosed, or even for us who have been living with it for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So having said that, I want us to play a little game. 
<laughs> Are you up for it? I'm ready. Okay. So the game is called Fact or Myth. So basically myself, Sarah, and Lauren, we're going to ask you a question and you're going to answer either fact or myth, and then you're going to explain what it means. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready, Anthony? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Drum roll, please. Okay. So first question, alopecia areata is caused by stress. I would say partly myth, partly fact. So stress itself doesn't necessarily cause alopecia from a like a biological standpoint. But mm-hmm. we do know that um, chronic stress can exacerbate it or make it worse. So my short answer would be that stress does not cause alopecia areata. Um, but for some people, it can make it worse. Okay. Well, our second is alopecia areata is contagious. Absolute myth. So um, alopecia areata is not contagious. It's not an infection. It's an autoimmune disease. So you absolutely cannot get it just by being in contact with somebody. Okay. That's a great one to know, especially for kids. Uh, Sometimes children don't understand why other children may have hair loss or alopecia. So there can be some myths out there surrounding whether it's contagious or not. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's a great one to debunk. Are the causes of alopecia areata and scarring alopecia areata the same? So it's... It's not the easiest question to answer, and that's because we know very little about uh, scarring alopecia, and it really depends on the type of scarring alopecia that we're talking about. But I can say very generally that, you know, we know a little bit more about alopecia areata than we do about scarring alopecia. And from what we do know, they're probably not the same, biologically speaking, like in terms of how the diseases work. But there may well also be some similarities, and that's something that I want to explore in my own career is trying to delineate what exactly is going on, not only in alopecia areata, because we still have more to learn about that, but scarring alopecia as well, because so so little is known about that. Absolutely. Um, alopecia areata is hereditary. So it's a fact for some people. Um, but not for everyone. So okay. uh, we we haven't fully elucidated the genetic behavior of alopecia areata. So we know that in some families, it's generational and every generation has alopecia areata. Whereas some families like myself, there's only one person on both sides of the family who has it. So yeah, for some people, it is hereditary and others it isn't. And again, it just speaks to this idea that there's so much that we don't know about mm. alopecia areata that we we just can't tell you if it's going to run in your family or not. Right. That's really interesting to know that it can be different for other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Our last one is alopecia areata can be caused by other autoimmune diseases. I would say myth because it's not that alopecia areata is caused by other autoimmune diseases. But when somebody has an autoimmune disease, whether it's alopecia areata or uh, rheumatoid arthritis or systemic lupus, if you have one, 
you're more likely to have another one. But it's not that they cause each other. It's just that you have this predisposition to having more than one autoimmune disease if you already have one. So no, as far as I know, alopecia areata is not caused by other autoimmune diseases, but it's quite common to see people with alopecia areata who have other autoimmune diseases such as vitiligo or type 1 diabetes. Yeah, that makes sense. Is there anything else that you would like to debunk or, you know, add on to about causes of alopecia areata? I don't know that I have anything to debunk with respect to causes, but the biggest myth that I would like to debunk is that alopecia areata is just a cosmetic condition because it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, while it is true that alopecia areata doesn't necessarily affect our health. I mean, we, people generally are very healthy with alopecia areata. It has a very significant impact on people's mental health um, and their social health. And so it, it very much is a legitimate medical condition that has very serious ramifications. I've always wondered why people think that it's just hair. Because mm-hmm. like you said, it's so much, it's so, it goes beyond that. And I wish people could just see that because I know that there are people out there that probably wouldn't want to trade places with us, but they're mm-hmm. the same ones that would say, oh, it's just hair. You'll be fine. You're still a beautiful person. Nothing's changed. But I think people forget that we're actually mourning a loss mm-hmm. and it's a new look for us like we have to learn how to re-love ourselves and re-like what we see in the mirror and for some of us you know it's so traumatic like you're losing a part of your culture and identity do you know what I mean yeah I think you know it's very easy for people on the outside to look at it and say oh it's just hair nothing's changed Mm -hmm. but what people don't really understand is that we associate so much of our identity with how we look Exactly. Because when we wake up in the morning, that's what we see in the mirror. That person, that's who we are to us. And Mm -hmm. so when your identity, when your physical identity is changing often so rapidly and you really feel like you're losing your whole identity and you have to, you kind of have to find who you are again. And so it's, always frustrated me when people even with the best of intentions when they're saying it's just hair and you know you're no different um you're you're not really helping you're probably making it worse when you say that um and so i just always implore people to be empathetic and not be so quick to jump on the it's just hair bandwagon that's so true thank you so much for bringing that up because i think that's probably like you said the the biggest myth that we have to really work mm-hmm. to debunk and that's a big part of what CANAF tries to do is just to really educate and bring awareness to the internal battle that we go through when we lose our hair. Mm-hmm. So for those who are experiencing signs of hair loss, Anthony, what can they do in the interim maybe while they're waiting for an appointment with a dermatologist? Mm-hmm. So the first thing that I would recommend they do is get in contact with their family physician or nurse practitioner um, because they are going to be the ones to make the referral to see a dermatologist. And in the interim, they actually can prescribe not many treatments, but there are some things that they can prescribe. So 
they can prescribe um, corticosteroid lotions, um, which you can start. They don't work for everyone, but they do work for some people. And so it doesn't hurt to give it a try. And I would also, not even just from a treatment perspective, but while you're waiting to see a dermatologist, I would strongly recommend that they start seeking mental health care, even if they think they're okay right now. Um, I think it's important to kind of get the ball rolling in that um, because if the alopecia gets worse, uh, that tends to be when people start to experience things like anxiety and depression. And so if, if we can get, if we can be proactive about that and get on top of that um, by seeking that mental health support before things get worse, I think that people would be in a better position to cope if and when that situation arises. That's excellent advice. Yeah, it's helpful, like you said, to do things almost proactively. Mm -hmm. And uh, that preparation really is key, maybe for something that, like you spoke about earlier, is oftentimes a very rapid loss or Mm -hmm. such a cyclical and unpredictable pattern of loss. So thank you for that insight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always found when, like, I went to dermatology appointments even when I'd been more than once, you know, I always found it was helpful for me to even like do some research ahead of time and really be as informed as possible before going in. And then even like, just like writing some questions down ahead of time or bringing them with me just so I'm there and I'm, I'm ready to ask what I need to ask. Cause sometimes in the moment you can feel a little nervous or a little anxious and you may forget things. So I always found that helped me too. I don't know what you guys think or if there's any other things that helped you going into appointments. I think for me, the one thing that I do regret about my alopecia journey was not taking pictures. Mm. I was not in the mental state to want to have something tangible in my hand where it was like, oh, look at my scalp's bleeding on Monday. That's awesome. Like I just didn't want to have something that I could refer to. But I really wish in hindsight that I did take photos because when I did see a dermatologist, they were just basing um, their assessment off of what they could see right Mm -hmm. then and there. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like if they had like a history of photos, then they could see like the different types of um, uh, the different types of experiences that I had, because I have a form of scarring alopecia and it's um, CCCA. Anthony, do you want to say it? Because I always mess up yeah. the way I say it. <laughs> so it's central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia. alopecia. Yes. Oh, that's a great yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a, a great idea. It's just maybe having somebody else take those pictures for you because I can say for from sure. my experience, the few times that I did take pictures of my scalp, it was incredibly traumatic to see the full extent of what it looked like. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because I could only see the top and the sides of my head. I couldn't see the back of my head. And I almost didn't want to see it because I didn't want to accept how bad it was. Um, but I, I do agree that taking pictures helps the dermatologist or the practitioner kind of have an idea of this is what it looked like at this point. This is what it looks like now. Um, right. But it might be helpful to have someone else take them. And, and you don't even have to look at them. Just have them. Um, and maybe just give them to your dermatologist and say, here, this is what it looked like. And you don't have to look at it if you don't want to. Because I know for me, it elicited very strong emotional responses when I saw just yeah. how extensive the hair loss was for me. Yeah, because yeah. it's 
there's no there's no rhyme or reason to it. Like some like alopecia just kind of strikes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what what's happening to my body? Is it something that I ate? Is it something, you know, maybe I drank something or I had an allergic reaction? Like we just don't know, right? So you're absolutely right. Like having someone else take photos is probably an excellent idea because I know for me it was very triggering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That can be very shocking to see for the first time and for the second time and for, you know, a while after that <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> for sure. Anthony, you already mentioned a few treatments that are available mm-hmm. for alopecia areata. Can you talk to us more about what options are out there for both adults and for children? Because I know some are safe for adults, and but some aren't safe for children. Like, what are our options? Yeah, absolutely. So the unfortunate reality is that um, all of the treatment options that I will go over were never really meant for alopecia areata. It just kind of happened that we realized it worked for some people. So they're all repurposed treatments, but uh, kind of starting from the beginning, um, corticosteroid lotions, um, they are often the first line therapy. These are medications that you would apply to the scalp or very carefully to the eyebrows. And the hope is that the medication will be absorbed into the skin and trigger the skin to produce uh, anti-inflammatory proteins. If that doesn't work, then the next line would be uh, corticosteroid injections. So injecting the steroid directly into the skin. And you can do that for the scalp as well as for the eyebrows. I did also hear that in the US they were doing that for eyelashes, but I would not recommend that because mm-hmm. I certainly don't want a needle in my eyelid. Um, no. Uh, for s- some people did that and it worked for them and that's great. Um, so we have that. And then the corticosteroid injections tend to work quite well for people. But the issue with that is that it's not long lasting. So you, you will likely get some hair regrowth with the injections, but you have to consistently go for these injections to keep the hair lot, the hair growth there. Um, and so many people will do it for however many months until they get tired of going and then they kind of just stop. And then in those cases, if we wanted to be a little bit more aggressive with our treatment, um, then we could consider an oral immunosuppressant like um, methotrexate. That's generally reserved for adults, but it is used in children as well. Um, It just depends on the comfort level of the dermatologist that's treating the child. Um, And in any case, whether it's an adult or a child, it does require very strict supervision by a specialist physician. Um, And so that would be either a dermatologist or a rheumatologist. Um, They would need to be monitoring your blood work every month to make sure that you're tolerating the medication uh, well. As with any treatment, none of these are curative, so they're not cures. So, Mm. you know, I think it's very important that you have a discussion with your dermatologist about expectations because, you know, if, if something works for you, whether it's the corticosteroid injections or it's the methotrexate, you can't be on these medications forever in most cases. In some cases, you can be on them for a very long time. But in most cases, you know, you kind of have to decide how long you're willing to take them. And that's, of course, a personal decision that you have to make with your dermatologist. So you know, if something does work for you, that's great. 
but you do need to be prepared for the possibility that it it won't work forever. And I should also mention that there are other other, um, off-label treatments that you could try. Um, I outlined it in an article that I wrote for CANAP just recently, but there are things like DCP or DPCP, which is uh, a treatment that's applied to the scalp. And the idea behind that is if we can create a minor allergic reaction on the scalp, your immune system will leave the hair follicles alone and it will go after the allergic reaction instead. Um, but that is a, it's a very irritating treatment and it's not well tolerated by many people. And it's also not very easy to access because it has to be delivered in a very controlled setting. So there is that option, but it's, it's not the most accessible option for most people. Right. I did DPCP for a while when I was younger and it did work for me for a long time. When I did lose all my hair and I started wearing wigs, you know, I kind of had to stop the treatment one because it stopped working. Mm -hmm. And two, just because the combination of that and wearing a wig was just so irritating for my scalp. So I think, like you said, it really is what you're prepared to take on and, you know, being aware of the risks and the challenges that go along with each treatment in order to decide what's best for you. Um, But yeah, there, there are a number of treatments out there that I feel can be really effective for some people and it's just making that decision whether whether to try them yeah and you know like I should mention there are other treatments that I haven't mentioned and I think you know it would take a very long time if I was to sit here and explain all of them but I think with any treatment like you said you know you have to kind of decide what you're willing to go through and what you're willing to tolerate and you also have to manage your expectations because as I said, you know, um, a treatment might work for you and you may get hair growth, but there may come a time when that treatment stops working and you start losing hair again. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think my recommendation would be for any treatment, you have to go into it being prepared to not know what's going to happen. So don't go into a treatment expecting it to work. But also don't go into a treatment expecting it to not work because, you know, nobody wants to be negative, Um, but just manage your expectations accordingly. For sure. I think that's excellent advice. And also for anyone, uh, Anthony mentioned that he did write a blog post recently about treatments for alopecia areata. If you're curious and want to learn more about what treatments are out there, you can visit our blog at canaf.org. And yeah, you can read his full article. And, you know, Anthony, in talking about expectations, um, I feel like social media, for example, there's so many ads that I've come across that talk about serums, uh, topical treatments, dietary solutions, and things like that. And they always seem to include like before and after pictures Mm -hmm. of people's hair growing back, like, you know, success stories. And you know me, I'm very leery of things like that, because I feel like it gives people a false sense of hope in some cases. For Mm -hmm. me, I fell for some of them um, because I felt so desperate because I didn't know what was going on with my scalp. So how can people discern what will work versus what won't work? Like, I know we talked about expectations, but I feel like the internet is kind of inundated with these quick um, hair loss solutions for mm-hmm. little money, or it's like you have to buy a series of it. And like you said, you have to keep using it in order to maintain the results. Like, how do people discern 
you know, what to do in that case, because I feel like when we do lose our hair, we are in a bit of a, a desperate situation because we just don't know what's happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, certainly Western medicine doesn't have all of the answers and it Mm -hmm. may well be possible that certain, and I'll say this in quotes, natural treatments might work for some people, but I just would like to strongly emphasize that there's very little scientific evidence supporting any, you know, quote unquote, natural serum or supplement. And so in terms of discerning what's fact and what's fiction, I would say if you're looking at something and they're promising full regrowth, you know, going from no hair at all to a full head of hair, it's probably not true because even some of the best medications that we have available right now can't do that. And so it's it's highly unlikely that whatever this company or a person is offering is going to be able to do that for you. I would also advise, you know, if they're asking you to spend money or, or you have to sign up to learn more, if they're asking for your credit card information, it's probably fake. My recommendation would be to anyone that is able to understand um, the literature to do just a quick Google search. Uh, whatever it is that they're proposing and see if any research comes up supporting its use. And, you know, if you're not comfortable doing that or you don't, you don't really understand how to look at the research, the best thing you can do is go to your family physician, go to your dermatologist and say, Hey, I saw this on Instagram or Facebook or Pinterest. Do you know if this really works or come to CanAp? I'm always happy to answer people's questions. You know, all you have to do is send me an email and say, Hey, Anthony, I saw, you know, this treatment, this proposed treatment. Do you think there's any legitimacy to it? Do you think it works? And I'll be able to tell you. And just to add one more thing, because you know, my brain's always working. (laughs) Diet. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's another big thing because like when you're dealing with inflammation, like there are certain foods that may trigger one's inflammation and that sort of thing. So how do you debunk or can you break down maybe the myths or facts surrounding that, you know, say, for example, if you go gluten and dairy free, that that will help reduce the inflammation and maybe stimulate some sort of hair growth? Yeah. So as far as gluten goes, there isn't really any strong data to suggest that gluten in and of itself causes any inflammation and and causes alopecia. But in people who have celiac disease, so who have inflammatory reactions to consuming gluten, cutting it out may cause or may trigger some hair growth. But just generally speaking, as far as we know, there aren't any particular foods or diets that cause alopecia. Some people may have heard of the autoimmune protocol diet, which, you know, some people swear by and you know what, maybe it works for them. But again, it all comes down to whether or not we have the evidence to support its use. So, you know, I would tell somebody flat out that, you know, there's no harm in trying a diet if you see one to see if it works for you. But I would say if you're not seeing results within, you know, a month or so, 
it's probably not worth going through whatever restriction it is that you have to do for that diet. Okay. Um, yeah. So pretty much look for the evidence, do your research. And if you're unsure, you know, ask Anthony mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, talk to your doctor and see what they recommend to you. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, great. And I also just wanted to add to sometimes you can be fooled by certain treatments that work for hair loss, but not necessarily alopecia areata. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, Uh... sometimes I have strangers who tell me their hair loss solutions like, oh, you know, my aunt had hair loss and she rubbed coconut oil all over her head and now her hair's back. And so maybe her aunt had a different form of hair loss and that's why it worked for her but for something like alopecia areata like anthony was saying you know there might not be that research behind it to show that it actually works for alopecia areata so just just again like about guarding your expectations and being careful you know about who you trust and what information you trust because alopecia is already such an emotional ride Mm -hmm. and having all these other voices you know, telling you what to try and what what treatments to do can can really um, impact your mental health. So just just always be careful and, and do your research and, you know, uh, find a few voices who you trust to listen to. Yeah. And it, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually was using coconut oil for the longest time uh, because I was told the same thing. But, oh, my it was actually their aunt as well, uh, who, right. <laughs> who had alopecia and uh, she used a whole bunch of coconut oil. And it worked for her. So what did I do? I went to Walmart and I bought a huge jar of coconut oil and I was <laughs> yep. lathering it all over my head for the longest time uh, with no response. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, there are many different types of alopecia. I think sometimes people, they use the, the term alopecia to describe alopecia areata. And, yeah. um, you know, yeah. it's, it's important mm-hmm. to understand that alopecia, the term, is a medical term for hair loss. It says nothing about the type of hair loss that you have. So, you know, under that umbrella of alopecia, we have androgenetic alopecia, which is one of the more common types that people have. There's alopecia areata, there's CCCA. So yeah, whenever someone tells you something worked for their alopecia, it does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that it's going to work for you too. Yeah, that's such an important distinction. And Mm -hmm. don't worry, I too went through the coconut oil uh, <laughs> phase where I bought the jar of coconut. I tried it and yep, it didn't yeah. work for me either. <laughs> I'm going to throw a monkey wrench. In. Did you, any of you guys try the egg and mayo or am I the only one? I did not try that. <laughs> I didn't this? do egg and mayo, but I did uh, onion juice. I did uh, that too. I yep, did that. And yep. I think my family probably is still angry at me for that because if anybody knows when you are juicing an onion, Yep. The scent goes through the entire house and it makes everybody's <laughs> eyes water. And so we were all wearing sunglasses while I was juicing it because I was determined to get that onion juice and to get my hair growing back. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> I know exactly was... what you mean. And you put it in a spray bottle, right? Yep. Yep. See? Oh my goodness. Yeah, like the onion juice was very strong. And even the um the mayo and egg mm-hmm. treatment. People were telling me that maybe I just didn't have enough protein and egg is protein. So mm-hmm. mix it with mayo and slather it on my head like I was a mess. And I kept doing it because I'm like, okay, protein. But then when you Google and you do a little bit more digging, 
the molecules in eggs are huge. How is that even penetrating anything? Yeah. And you know what? That's that tends to be the difficulty with topical treatments in general is getting it to actually absorb into the skin and get Mm -hmm. to the hair follicle where we want it to go. There's no legitimacy to any of that. The things we will do for hair. Am I right, guys? Yeah. Right? It's the audacity, right? Can we? The audacity. Yes. (laughs) Uh, In terms of other treatments that are available, the biggest breakthrough that we've seen right now is with uh, JAK or Janus kinase inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Um, They were recently approved in the U.S. uh, as the first ever approved treatment for alopecia areata. Um, because up until that point, as I said, uh, every treatment that we were using has been repurposed. And the way that JAK inhibitors work is they inhibit a part of our immune system that's called the JAK-STAT pathway. And that just plays a role in the communication of uh, the immune cells that are causing the attacking. Okay, so I guess my question would be, how long can someone be on these? It really depends on the person. So JAK inhibitors are uh, a type of selective immunosuppressant. So Mm -hmm. that is something that we have to bear in mind when someone is on it. So it it really depends on the prescribing physician and how they feel. They'll monitor your blood work. uh, I believe it's every month, at least in the beginning, to see how you're responding to it. So short answer is I don't have a time frame because for everyone it's going to be different but as far as I know it could be up to several years. And are there any potential risks or side effects? Yeah so with every medication every single medication has its own risks even the basic Tylenol and Advil that we take when we get a headache has risks Mm -hmm. Um, but with respect to jack inhibitors Because they are a selective immunosuppressant, there is an increased risk of developing infections. And that's just because, you know, as I'm sure everybody knows, our immune systems function to protect us from different pathogens that make us sick, like bacteria, viruses, parasites, things like that. And so if you're you're suppressing uh, even just a little bit of the immune system, you lose some of that protection potentially. And so that's why there is an increased risk of infections. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is if you were to look up JAK inhibitors right now, you would likely see that there is a potential increased risk for malignancy or cancer. Okay. Um, I should mention that it's a low risk and you're monitored every month by your uh, prescribing physician to see if the risk is increasing. And then if it isn't, you can stop the medication and the risk goes away. Um, but the reason why that risk exists is because similar to how the immune system protects us from bacteria and viruses, um, it also protects us against cancer. And that's something that not a lot of people know. Okay. Um, and so, again, if you're losing some of that protection, you are theoretically at an increased risk of developing malignancy. But as I said, your physician will monitor your white blood cell counts very carefully. And if they see that it's starting to go up, they can take you off the medication before anything becomes a problem. And I guess what would happen if you stopped taking it? Yeah, so that's something that we don't have a whole lot of scientific evidence on right now. Um, Okay. But likely what would happen is 
the person would lose some of their hair, if not all of the hair that has regrown. And it's unfortunate, but that's just because the, the drug only works as long as you're taking it. So, you know, it, it does suppress the autoimmune response. But once you stop taking the drug, you don't have anything to suppress that immune response anymore. And so it, it has the potential to start firing again, and start attacking the hair follicles. So realistically, the person will probably lose some hair, maybe not all of the hair that they regrew, but likely some. But who knows, there is a possibility that, you know, maybe somebody takes it and then they stop taking the medication and they don't lose any of the hair that they regrew. Is there any idea of when this will be available in Canada? And do you know if it'll be covered by insurance? Because I suspect something like this is probably very expensive mm-hmm. if you don't have coverage. Canada tends to be behind the U.S. in terms of approving drugs. And so that's why we haven't approved it yet. Based on conversations that I've had with dermatologists in Canada and pharmaceutical companies, it will hopefully be approved within the next six to eight months, but that's just an estimate. And so there's really no way to know it's the ball is in Health Canada's court and they just have to approve it. And then in terms of insurance companies covering it, Right now, they only cover uh, jack inhibitors for their approved treatments. So once jack inhibitors like Illumiant bear a synonym, that is the jack inhibitor that was approved in the U.S., once that's approved in Canada, then insurance companies will begin to see that there is some legitimacy to this and that it does work and it is worth covering. So uh, it may not happen right after it's approved, but it will, it should happen shortly after. And uh, you did mention that uh, they are likely expensive. They are. And so if somebody wanted to take a jack inhibitor now for alopecia areata, they would have to pay out of pocket. And they're looking at upwards of two, $3,000 for a month's supply. For one month's supply? For one month's supply. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Come on, Health Canada, get it together. <laughs> yeah. It's very expensive. Wow. And I'm just curious is this something that someone with uh, other forms of alopecia could try? Like, so for example, someone like myself who has a form of scarring alopecia. So it's interesting. For scarring alopecias, there has been some conversation about using JAK inhibitors to treat it because even though the biology underlying scarring alopecia is a little bit different than alopecia areata, there may be some similarities in terms of the inflammation Mm -hmm. uh, that happens. And so uh, there was some talk about using JAK inhibitors in the early stages of scarring alopecia, whether or not that has actually happened or, you know, whether or not there is any success to that. I'm not entirely sure. I would have to go back and look at the literature, but it is a possibility just because, you know, if the inflammation in scarring alopecia is caused by autoimmunity, then it makes sense that a jack inhibitor like Illumium could work, but more research is needed for that. And then in terms of other alopecias, uh, probably not because jack inhibitors are meant to treat autoimmune disease. Okay. So if, the type of alopecia, such as androgenetic alopecia, which isn't 
autoimmune in nature, um, there would be no need for a JAK inhibitor because it, it probably wouldn't do anything. So Anthony, can you share any projects or things that you've been working on recently, something new and up and coming for our listeners? Like what, what is next for you? Tell us more about what's on your agenda. Yeah, so there's quite a bit going on actually. Um, so anyone who follows CANAF might be aware that a couple of years ago, I embarked on a research study with a very well-known uh, dermatologist, Dr. Kathleen Sibold. And we wanted to investigate um, the burden of alopecia areata on Canadian patients and caregivers. And um, that research showed us that, you know, just as we suspected, uh, alopecia areata is significantly burdensome on people and it causes pervasive anxiety and depression. And, uh, you know, many people have adjustment disorder because of it. And so that research was published in the Journal of Medical Research, Medical Internet Research Dermatology. And after that, I embarked on a systematic review with Dr. Sibold again. And we looked at what the research says about different blood tests uh, in people with alopecia to see what, you know, what biomarkers are abnormal or are normal. And uh, we found that people with alopecia areata tend to have significantly lower levels of vitamin D um, and significantly higher levels of two inflammatory biomarkers. One is called C-reactive protein. Another one is called interleukin-6. Um, and so that research is uh, being published in autoimmunity reviews, which I'm very excited about because that is a very prestigious journal and we were almost didn't think we would get it, uh, but we did. So. That's exciting. And then in, in terms of what's next, uh, I'm going to be working with the University of British Columbia to see how alopecia areata impacts people's ability to work and to go to school. And I'm also going to be doing another research project looking at tackling anxiety in youth who have alopecia. Uh, and I'm sure I'll be doing more, but that's that's what I have going on right now. Wow. Booked and busy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So much exciting stuff going on. Yeah, it really is phenomenal. And I think all of your accomplishments, Anthony, are so inspiring. Even just the fact that you're such a strong advocate in this space. We're all really so grateful for that. And I guess I want to close by asking you, what would you tell your younger, newly diagnosed self? You know, you look at all the breakthroughs you're making within your medical career today. If you could go back and, and give yourself a couple words of wisdom, what would you say? Yeah, you know, I, I've thought about this because I've been asked this question a few times now. And it's like, I, if you had told me however many years ago when I was first diagnosed that I would be on the board of directors of Kenneth and I would be a researcher and I'd be published and I'd be making these breakthroughs, I wouldn't believe you because I honestly didn't even know if I could survive the alopecia, like as serious as it is, there was a point in time when I didn't want to be alive because my alopecia was causing such significant uh, mm. depression and anxiety. And so, you know, looking back and, and seeing that I, I made it through to the other side, so to speak, I think I would just tell myself that, you know, it will get better. It, it's not going to be like this forever. 
because I think for me, I really felt like my, my world was crumbling in front of me and there was nothing that I could do about it. And so I just wish that I, I could have had someone to tell me that it will get better. You will make it through and you can do whatever it is that you want to do with your life with or without hair. Alopecia does not have to be the thing that stops you. So that's what I would tell myself. Why am I crying? <laughs> I've cried a lot, so I get Oh it. my god. I, I felt that. Anthony. Yeah. That really yeah. Hit home. I felt that. Especially the part about, you know, you not even wanting to be here. Yeah. Like I'm sure there are people out there that can relate to that statement very strongly and we really want to strongly stress you are not in this fight alone Mm -hmm. there are organizations out there like canaf and naf and you know reach out to a counselor your friend someone that you trust so that you can express these emotions without feeling like you're so isolated and by yourself yeah Mm -hmm. and you know that's why i wish that i mean obviously there doesn't there's no sense in harping on it now but i i do wish that i could have that I had known about Canaf before, because while I wasn't alone, I had my family and I had my friends, there's something about being surrounded by people that have the same condition as you, because Mm -hmm. they just get it. Your family and your friends, they can try their hardest to say the right things to you, but nobody will truly understand what you're going through, like someone else that's also going through it. And so, you know, that's why I would highly encourage anyone who's newly diagnosed who maybe doesn't feel ready for say to jump into support groups and you know share their stories but just be there to listen just be there to be surrounded by people who have alopecia because the support that you get from that uh, really is life-changing and it's it's unlike anything else that you can ever get that's a perfect way to put it yeah it really is one step at a time and anthony all the steps that you've made towards helping people be more informed and more empowered. We really do appreciate it. So thank you so much much for this conversation, for your openness and sharing all the intel. It's been so wonderful to chat with you. Thank you for having me. uh, It's really been a pleasure to be here today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alopecia's Audacity, proudly hosted by Canaf. If you enjoyed it or learned something new, please rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen to your podcasts. Keep up with us by following our Instagram and Facebook, and subscribing to our YouTube channel, at Alopecia's Audacity. We welcome any questions and comments, which can be sent to alopeciasaudacity at canaf.org. You can also sign up for our mailing list at www.canaf.org. Stay tuned as we release new episodes on the third Wednesday of every month.